a couple years ago, we're going to Brazil. I guess it's been about five or six years ago. And you got to have a passport to go to Brazil. And uh, about January, I realized I didn't know where my passport was. I lost it completely. Looked all over the house. Any of y'all had one of those uh, excursions through the house where every drawer where you've ever possibly thought about putting something, you go through it, you ransack it, you take it out, you put it on the bed, you find stuff you didn't know you were missing, but you put it back there. It wasn't anywhere there, couldn't find it. And so I had to go through the whole process of getting a new passport. I had to, to go through the renewal process, the lost passport process and all of that. So we did all that and got ready to, got it back, got the visa back and got all that together, got ready to leave for Brazil that day, got the backpack out. I take to Brazil, unzipped one pocket, reached my hand in, guess what was in the pocket? My passport, right? Found it. You know what I've discovered is that when I find something I've lost, it's always in the last place I look. Anybody ever tell you that? Like, it's going to be the last place you look. Well, the reality is once you find it, you don't look anymore. So that's a true statement, all right? So everybody's had something lost. They've lost something. How many of you in this room have had something taken from you? Right? So maybe you're a teenager or you all of us were teenagers at one point if we haven't hit the teenage years yet. And maybe you did something you weren't supposed to and you had privileges taken from you. You have your phone taken from you, your Xbox taken from you, your time taken from you. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes um, you ask people to take stuff from you, right? It's not always bad, right? Hey, hey, I've got to have this taken somewhere. Can you take it for me there? What's the difference between losing something and having something taken? That's, that, that's good. Something else would be good. Oh, my God. What's the difference between losing something and having something taken? There's somebody else involved in the taking, right? Like somebody else is doing the action for you or to you or against you. Well, today we're going to talk about in just a moment, it's going to be a few minutes before we get there, but I want you to keep that in your mind because we're going to talk about when it's not bad to have something taken from you. And specifically, we're going to talk about some things we needed taken from our lives that Jesus did. Now, let me ask you a question because it's a special day. How many of you are first through fifth graders? Where are my first through fifth graders? Raise your hand. Let me see you. All right. Look all around. All right. That's excited. Good to have you here. We're glad you're here. Hey, let somebody tell me, what are you all talking about? Like normally on Sunday mornings, y'all are downstairs. So somebody that's in that group that's been downstairs, what are you all talking about right now? Alex, what do you got? You had to wear hair extensions in Sunday school today. Good. All right. That's what we're doing with our kids. We're making them wear hair extensions in Sunday school. All right. He was a priest uh, as they were crossing the Jordan River, for those of you that didn't hear his Sunday school lesson uh, over here. And so they've been talking about our, our young people, our kids are walking through the gospel project. Uh, they've started again through the Bible and are talking about the getting ready to go into the promised land, Joshua leading the promised land. They've talked about Ten Commandments and wandering. So first through fifth graders, I want you to know, while y'all have been doing that over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the last words that Jesus said when he was on the cross. And you may not know this, and you've been around here, adults, you may not have known this or may have realized it, but that, that Jesus is on the cross, he's dying on the cross, he has seven sayings that he says while he's dying on the cross. As Jeff mentioned earlier, in the midst of that emotional torture, in the midst of that physical torture, in the midst of that, that, uh, that spiritual torture, Jesus finds the strength to be able to utter, to be able to say seven sayings that all have significance. 
And over the last few weeks, we've begun to talk about those. We're going to talk about them today. And then for those of you that are still with us over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about them all the way up to the week before Easter, which is just a couple of weeks. And we're talking about what does it impact us? How does it impact us what Jesus said on the cross? And today, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Now, we're not going to go into details today about the crucifixion. We're not going to give all the details of what is happening. We did that a couple of weeks ago. But here's the the understanding. We know this, right? That it was bad. It was really bad. And what happened to Jesus on the cross was really difficult. And sometimes we ask the question, so how did we get to this moment? How did we get to the cross? There are lots of explanations out there about how we got to the cross, what was happening at the cross. But I want you to see in the moment what Jesus is doing while the crucifixion is happening. Starting in chapter 23, verse 32, it says this. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him. They came offering sour wine and said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription above him that said, this is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, you know, if you've ever seen a picture of the crucifixion or anything with the cross. There's obviously the centralized cross of Jesus, but beside the two, the cross of Jesus are two other crosses. And what's interesting to me is that God chose in the midst of all that is happening in the salvation that is coming through his son, Jesus, that when it was time for Jesus to step onto the stage of eternity and to take on the sins of humanity at the cross, that he did so being flanked on either side by nameless criminals. The Bible doesn't give them a name. We don't know their name. I think there's been some speculation throughout tradition about names, but there is no evidence whatsoever biblically that we ought to know who these men are. The point is, they are two criminals hanging with Jesus. And again, we ask the question, well, how did we get here? Well, there are really a couple of levels to that question, a couple of levels of answers to that question. First of all, we know that Jesus had become um, confrontational with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders of the days were jealous of him because he could build a crowd bigger than they ever could. People were following him when they were supposed to be following their teaching. 
We know that the secular leaders, the Roman officials, saw him as a nuisance, as somebody that was causing issues that they really didn't know what was going to happen. The Jewish people were disappointed in him because they thought he was going to be the Messiah that would overthrow the Roman government. In fact, the two criminals that are hanging on either side of Jesus, the word used for them in the other Gospels are that they were insurrectionists or they were guerrilla warfare men or they were men who were trying to overthrow the government. And there are some that believe that because of what they were doing in life, these zealots, they were disappointed that Jesus hadn't done what they wanted to be done, which is the Roman government overthrown and pushed out. And the disciples were confused. How did this happen? (laughs) Everything seemed great a week ago. And now, our teacher, our master, the one we thought was the Messiah, is hanging on the cross. So there are human answers as to how Jesus got to the cross, but there are more important spiritual answers because the reality is this is the culmination of what started in the Garden of Eden that God had talked about from the very beginning. Since Adam and Eve sinned, he said that there would come one that would crush the head of the snake. And in the process of this, that's happening. But in order to crush the head of the snake, it also said that he would get his heel bitten, that he would be injured. When Abraham and Isaac, when he took him up on the mountain and prepared to sacrifice him, and God said, no, stop. It was a picture coming of an innocent son being killed. The sacrificial system and all was just a picture of what was coming up. That what was going to happen is that an innocent was going to die for the guilty. That the innocent was going to take the place of the guilty. And so every year when Passover came and they prepared the lamb, their lamb that they had raised in their own home, and they took it to take its life in order to pay for their own sins and to remember that God had passed over the Israelites who had done that. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says that he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Martin Luther said that all the prophets foresaw that on the cross Jesus became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, and blasphemer that ever was. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter the denier, Paul the accuser and persecutor, David the murderer and adulterer, Adam the original sinner. You will become the husband that has neglected his family, the immoral woman who has ruined her life and her family's life. You will become the drug addict and the teenage teenager lying to his parents. You'll become the hypocrite, the proud, the selfish, the apathetic, the sinner. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want you to understand that because here's the picture that we have. Jesus is on the cross not because of anything specific that man did. He's on the cross as a part of the plan that God instituted to save us from our sins. Which is why when he looks out on the crowd and says, Father, forgive them, it's a moment of him declaring over them what he is doing in action on the cross at that moment. It has been said that the, uh, the gospel can be summed up in four words. Jesus in my place. 
that you and I are the ones that deserve to be on the cross. We are the ones that deserve to be with the criminals there hanging, our life taken from us because of the sin in our lives. But instead of that, Jesus died in my place. And the question that we really have to ask ourselves is, how do we respond to what Jesus did on the cross? My guess is that if you walk down to our kids' area, our first through fifth grade area, on any Sunday morning, and you walked into any of those Sunday school classes from first grade up, if you walked in to the kids' worship time that they're having there, and you ask any of those kids, why did Jesus die, that most of them would be able, maybe not in the words that we would immediately come up with, be able to tell you that Jesus died because of our sins, or he died for me. But what we do with that information is the most important decision we will ever make in our lives. And one of the most interesting things about the sayings that Jesus says on the cross is that one of them is specifically said in a situation that shows the different ways we can respond to Jesus. All along the Appalachian Mountains are the highest peaks of that particular side of the country. And rain that falls on the Appalachian Mountains when it hits what they call the Eastern Continental Divide. If it hits on the left, it flows to the Mississippi River. If it hits on the east, it flows to the Atlantic Ocean. And the reality is that even a centimeter's difference between those two, two identical raindrops falling at the same time, falling on separate sides of the divide, run to two different places. And what we have in Jesus' death here with the two criminals on either side, two guys that were very, very similar that ended up in two very different places. Now, here's what we know about these two guys, the two criminals. First of all, they were equally bad. One was not better than the other as far as we can tell. In fact, we pretty much think that because of the word that's used to describe them, that they weren't just little petty thieves. They were people that had done serious crimes, had, done, had stolen for sure, had probably been involved in murder or planning of murder or people being killed or riots or things that were trying to overthrow the government. And so they were in serious trouble for their actions. We also know, according to Matthew chapter 27, that both of these men start out their day cursing Jesus, cursing the one in the middle, perhaps because they thought he was somebody that could have overthrown the government. He didn't use his power correctly. He didn't speak truth to power enough. He wasn't one that had overthrown anything, and they were mad at him. But both of them start yelling at Jesus. But then something changes. I don't think it's coincidental, by the way, that it changes after Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because I think those two understood at that moment what Jesus was going through better than anyone else in the world as far as the physical difficulty that was happening, the physical torture that had happened. The two men on either side of him were in the same spot. They were gasping for the same air. They were pushing up on the same pierced feet. They were using their hands that were pierced with stakes to pull themselves up to attempt to breathe. And they saw in the midst of what's happening the graciousness of God through Jesus as he's telling the people around him that are telling God to forgive those that are there around him. And I think something sparked in one of their minds when that happened. And he says in verse 40, but the other said, rebuking him, don't you even fear God 
So that you are undergoing the same punishment. We are punished justly because we are getting back what we deserve from the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now here's what I want to point out real quickly. There are a couple of things in this man's statement that remind us of what is necessary to be saved. He asked a bold question of Jesus. A question that he has no right to ask. He has no backup to ask and to be granted permission. There is no reason that Jesus should say yes to his request. There is nothing in this question that should be responded to by yes based on who he is and who Jesus is. But there are a couple of things that we notice in this confession that help us to understand what's required to be saved. And the first thing is that he realizes his own guilt. Immediately he says, as he's thinking through this, he says, what are you talking about? We deserve what we're getting. We deserve what's happening in our lives. We deserve what's going on right now. These are guerrilla warfare, freedom fighters. Some people would have called them in that frame, not in the same exact way that we talk about today, but terrorists, people that were trying to overthrow the government. They would have been known for fires. They would have been known for killings. They would have been known for kidnapping, for ransom. And he says, this guy's done nothing wrong. Now, it's an astonishing admission that Jesus is perfect in his sight. But he thinks compared to himself, there is nothing wrong in what Jesus has done for sure and that he is guilty before the Lord. It is a confession on par with David in chapter 51 of Psalms, the Psalm 51, when he says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned, when he is reminded of what he's done in adultery and in murder. And the reality is, that you and I have a lot more in common with the two criminals on either side of Jesus than with Jesus. Scripture says we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Not have fallen, we all are falling short of the glory of God. We are sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Now, most of you in this room know those two verses. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the reality is most of the time when we read those stories now, we're thinking about them evangelistically to tell other people about how they need to come to Jesus. But it also speaks to our current condition before the Lord outside of Jesus. We are all sinners, and we all deserve death. That's who we are. R.C. Sproul, who is a pastor that passed away within the last year, said that people always ask me the question, why do bad things happen to good people? He says that isn't a good question because that's only happened once in history and that person volunteered. None of us are good people. Now, that's a hard lesson to learn. I know we got kids in here today. Kids, you need to learn this early on. None of us are good people. Your parents are sinners. We don't like to admit that to our kids, but we are. Your grandparents are sinners. Your Sunday school teachers are sinners. Your pastor is a sinner. All of us are without hope except for Jesus. We are in desperate condition and we must understand our guilt. The second thing that this criminal understands is, first of all, he understands his own guilt and shame. The second thing he understands is that Jesus could do something about it. Jesus could help. Right? 
Now, he's looking around. You want to talk about a hopeless situation? Right? You're on a cross dying as a common criminal, and you don't believe in the afterlife before you get on the cross. Because most people in Jewish tradition didn't. And he's sitting there on the cross, and he's thinking to himself, I got myself into this mess. I don't know about this. I've never been in this situation. But my guess is you would do some life reflection at this point. Right? Like, how did I get here? What did I do? Like, man, I really messed that up. I misunderstood what I, my purpose was. Now, one guy doesn't seem to be. He just seems to be still be mad at the world. But this guy's contemplating life, and he thinks, I am guilty. There is nothing I can do to deny the fact that I am guilty. This is what I deserve. And then he says, but there perhaps hold out hope that Jesus can do something about it. I want to tell you this. You know this if you've been in church. I just want you to live it. There is no one in this world that can do anything for you outside of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying there aren't people that want to try to help, but I'm talking about the deepest questions of your soul can only be solved by Jesus. The biggest meaning of your life can only be solved by Jesus. And this criminal on the cross says, I'm guilty, and Jesus can do something about it. Listen, I want to guarantee you one thing about this criminal. He did not have it all figured out. He didn't have the theology of Christianity worked through. He didn't understand everything there was to understand about the Bible. We don't even know if he had biblical knowledge of the Old Testament at all. But what he does know is he's in trouble and Jesus can help. And that's it. Now look at what Jesus answers. Because the reality is Jesus doesn't have to answer him at all. He could have just said, it's too bad, it's too late. But he doesn't. Jesus gives him an answer that isn't required or necessary or expected from a human perspective. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now he starts before that by saying the word truly. Just so you know, in the original language, that's the word amen. And if Jesus can say amen, so can you. That's all I'm going to say today, all right? Well, that's not all I'm going to say. i got about 30 minutes of other stuff. But that is, just remember that. If Jesus can say amen, so can you. So he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I mean, when I asked you earlier, what's the difference between losing something and having something taken from you? I just want us to think, for the end of our time, just for a couple of minutes, that in this one statement, what Jesus took from this guy. What did Jesus take away from this guy in this one statement? And there are three things. One of them we talked about two weeks ago. One of them we'll talk about next week. And one I want to focus on today. But the three things he did, he took from him in this time, was first of all, he took away his guilt and shame. Because in order to be with Jesus, in order to be with God in paradise, paradise is the word they used that meant garden, but it had this understanding of a future place, a resurrected place, a redone place, what we would think of today as heaven, the new Jerusalem, a new earth that would be explained later in the scriptures. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. In order to be in paradise with God, you must have your guilt and shame wiped away. 
God cannot allow sin into his paradise or it is no longer paradise. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, right? Sin came into the Garden of Eden. What did God do to Adam and Eve? What did he do? Kicked them out. He didn't just kick them out. What did he do after he kicked them out? He put angels at the gates to say, you're not getting back in. And so if he's going to be with Jesus in paradise, just track with me here for a minute, that means whatever guilt and shame, whatever sin he has in his life, has been wiped away, even in the midst of Jesus doing that for the entire universe, he does it specifically for this man at this moment. Think about that for a minute. The weight of the sin of the world is on Jesus at this moment, and he takes time to help out a guy who doesn't deserve it at all. That's called grace. The second thing he takes in that statement is he takes God's anger. Now listen, we're going to talk about this more next week when we, use the, when we talk about the statement Jesus makes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to talk about the spiritual nature of what is happening in this moment, that the anger of God is visiting itself upon Jesus against sin because God cannot stand sin. He is angry at sin. He hates sin. He wants to remove sin. In Scripture, there's a big word for this. It's the word propitiation. Say that with me. Propitiation. Y'all got close, all right? It's one of those words you can throw around at the water cooler and sound really smart, right? You don't have to even use it in the right way because nobody else will know what you're talking about either. They'll just nod like, yeah, I know what you're, yeah. With you, man. Love that. Love that. Love that. All right. But in Scripture, when it says that he was the propitiation of our sin, it means that, yes, he removed the stain of sin and guilt in our lives. But that word also means that he stood in our place to receive the anger of God for our sin. And here's the last one. And then we're done. He took from this man and from us. The distance between God and us. Our sin had created a gap between where we are and where God is. You know my favorite word in that statement that he says to the criminal? Truly I say to you this, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know my favorite word in that whole place is? Today. There's not a waiting period. There's not a send your credit score in to see if it'll work. There's not a let Peter calculate your good and bad. Let's weigh all the differences that are out there. There's not a, hey, when we get to the other side of paradise, we'll have a conversation about it then. He says, today, right now, this moment, you can be assured you're with me. And I want you to think about in that word, In those saying, the distance that he took away in a single second. And here's the reality. The greatest thing about this particular story in the Bible is it gives us the two choices we can make when it comes to Jesus. 
Two criminals are hanging on the cross. You and I are both criminals. Now, we are not insurrectionists in first century Jerusalem, but we are men and women, boys and girls, who have all fallen short of the glory of God, who are people who sin on a regular basis. And without Jesus, we have no hope. Jesus is dying in the midst of them and has died for your sins and for mine. The question is, which criminal are you? Are you the one? That has said, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to make it on my own. I'm not going to worry about anything else. Or are you the criminal that says, I can only be saved by Jesus? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Time of response. And I want it to be a very specific time of response today. Two things. Two things that I want you to respond to. If you've got other things on your heart, if you've got other things on your mind, I'd love to talk to you after the service today. But in this response time, I want two things really for you to think about. One is, if you're here today and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never been forgiven of your sins by Jesus, then I want you to work with that, to think about that, to deal with that right now here today. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of our first through fifth graders and you're here. You've talked about it downstairs and you've thought about it and you've asked questions about it and you're ready to make that decision. You're ready to talk about what that means afterwards, baptism and all of that. But if today you are here and you say, I've never done that and I want to, I want to offer you to come down in just a moment when we sing. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to talk to you about that. The second thing is, if you're here, and we have some here that have been visiting for a little bit, been talking about joining the church or have been thinking about it. If you're here and you say, this is the church I want to be a part of in order that I can help tell people, help this church tell people about what it means to be saved, then I want you to come today. So if you're here and you're ready to accept Jesus as your Savior, or you're here and you're ready to join what's happening at First Baptist, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.